Matthew 14, as Jason mentioned, today we're going to be in the last part of the chapter, starting with verse 22. Matthew 14, verse 22. So last week, we learned about John the Baptist and his demise, his, his death, and we, we took a little bit from that, that speaking truth in a fallen world is going to cost you. For him, it cost him his life, but it's worth it. Speaking truth in a fallen world will be costly, but it's worth it always. We also, as Jesus fed the 5,000 plus people, really probably a much higher number there, um, we, we learned from that how he began teaching the disciples several things about himself, to rely on him and how to be compassionate servants. And some of you took me very literally, and I praise God for this. I came in one day this week, and the landscape committee was already plugging away out here in beautifying the outside. Is that a word? Is beautifying a thing? Okay, it is. Um, so, and one of them said, you thought we weren't listening, didn't you? <laughs> Bob, <clears throat> Bob. But no, but that's good. Um, Jesus was teaching how to be compassionate servants. Uh, he did not, I pointed out, he didn't serve anybody any of the food. He didn't pick up any of the leftovers. The disciples did that. Jesus was giving them opportunity to learn how to serve. Okay, And he, it was as if, as if he was saying, don't look around you to the need. Don't look at the problem. Look at the provider. Because when he grabbed the food, he looked to heaven to the Father, blessed it, broke it, and then multiplied it in the way that we saw. Um, this also, as being compassionate servants, taught us that if you have been saved, God has given you a good work to do. He's given you stuff to do. Ephesians 2 spells this out. Before the foundation of the world, good works, they're for Christians. You don't do them to stay saved or to earn your salvation, but you do them because of God's grace in your life. It propels you to do those things. And we, we talked about how Jesus meets needs in us, but he also wants to meet needs through us. He uses us in that process. And today we come to this portion of Scripture that has had a lot of attention on it for a long time. And that's not necessarily bad. I actually think it's a good thing, unless, of course, we as the hearers just kind of think all that there is, we, we know all that there is to know about this, and we allow our minds to drift off and wonder, I know this already, I don't need to hear it again, I'm going to check out at church today. Um, so I would ask that we make a pointed effort today to not let our minds wander, to fight against that temptation, not because I have anything fascinating to say at all, um, but because God's word, as Hebrews says, is constantly cutting away our self-righteousness and our pride and laying us bare before a holy God who chooses to set his affection on sinners. And that's you and me today, guys. And God has chosen us to hear his word in this way, being preached, even the foolishness of it sometimes, and to be saved and to continue our sanctification through this. So don't let your mind wander. There's some really interesting things about this text today that I hope we'll see together. Let's read through it first, though. Matthew chapter 14, starting with verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, 
he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got up out of the boat and walked on the water, and he came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we believe that that this word is yours. You have divinely inspired it, breathed it out, and it's useful for us, Lord. And so I pray today that we would fight against the temptation to let our minds and our hearts wander. Lord, give us ears to hear. We so desperately need to hear from you today, not from Rod, not from any other person here, Lord, but from you and your spirit. And so as, as we talk this morning, as things are shared and we read more of your word, I pray that it has precedence over everything that happens here and that we'll be encouraged and, and, uh, and like the people at the end of this chapter, Lord, when you show up, we're healed, we're made right. And uh, I pray that you'd make us right today. In your name, amen. If we, if we factor in John's account of this event, we're, we're going to see a little bit more detail as to why Jesus and the disciples exited the area so quickly after he fed the 5,000. Okay, so I want us to flip to, to John chapter 6. We're just going to read a few verses. John chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to make him to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So in other words, they believed in Jesus as a great source of prosperity, right? He can feed thousands and thousands of people. I can get behind this, right? They believed in Jesus as a great source of prosperity, but not as a great savior from sin and not as the true Messiah himself. Their perception of him was skewed and wrong. And Jesus understood this. I mean, it says... They wanted him to be king. Jesus perceived, he understood, they were coming and they were going to try to force him to be king. Verse 26 of chapter 4 in John gives us a little bit more info and it reveals their motivation. Jesus answered them, saying, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You see the difference? They were following him. They were interested in him. They wanted to make him king, not because he was really, truly the Messiah that could save them from sin, but because he filled their stomachs. Right? This is why Jesus left so quick and why he sent the disciples away just as quick. John's perspective of this event helps us see another deeper truth that Jesus himself is actually the bread from heaven. He's saying, you, you love me, you want me, because I can fill your stomachs. What I'm here to tell you is, and he makes this real clear in John's account, what I've come to tell you is, I am what should satisfy you. And they, they, didn't, they weren't getting it just yet. And this reminds me of what Jesus has already said about the field. Remember the treasure in the field? About the, the pearl of great price? He's saying, I am the treasure. Jesus is saying, I am the treasure. The kingdom of heaven is here now, and it's worth giving up everything else for. And yet, we're constantly tempted to become enthralled by the creation instead of the creator, aren't we? Man, Satan twists that. God has created all things for good, and Satan twists that, and our sinful nature twists that, and we start to focus on the creation instead of the creator, and that skews everything else. And so Jesus has come to be setting us straight. He's constantly setting us straight. Don't become enthralled by this. Treasure me, not stuff. Jesus didn't come into the world to give us cool stuff. He came to save us from cool stuff. You see what I'm saying? I like cool stuff. Don't get me wrong. My heart tends to go there too often. Jesus came to save me from that stuff. He's, he's saying, I didn't come to the world to give you your best easy life now. I came to give you eternal life now and later. That's why he's come. But the crowds, they wanted the stuff, didn't they? That's what he says in verse 26. You come because you ate your fill of the loaves. The crowds, they wanted stuff, not Jesus. They wanted to eat their fill. They wanted to be secure. They thought that if they had this kind of a guy who could multiply food, any military situation they could get into, they'd be good. They could just starve out the other people because they had a guy who could make food. This guy's king. We're going to be undefeated. And their understanding and expectation of Jesus was way off base. And I wonder if it's similar for us today. Not in that aspect, but just in other aspects of what we know and who we know Jesus to be. Is our perception and expectation of him a real biblical expectation? So, Jesus, when he understands and perceives that they just, really, they, they just want to make, they view him as like this cosmic vending machine. Put the money in, get the food out, right? When he understood that about them, he left quickly. And he sent the disciples out onto the lake and was able to get alone with the Father for a few hours, what he couldn't do last week. Right? Last week he tried to get away after he found out John had been killed. Crowds, they followed him on foot. And he was compassionate to them. Now he gets a time to be alone. And at this point I think it would be good just to pause for a second and better understand the turn of events from the disciples' perspective. Okay, This is interesting as I was thinking and reading through some of these things this week. Um, 
think about this. So they had just seen Jesus feed, uh, you know, 5, 10, 15, maybe even 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Um, they had felt the enthusiasm of the crowd, right? The crowd was getting behind them. Finally, after obscurity, finally we're getting known and Jesus is doing cool stuff and we're part of something awesome. And then just as quickly as it started, it's like Jesus throws a bunch of cold water on that kind of a movement. Nope, that's not what I want. Go, go across the lake, I'll meet you there. I mean, he just douses any kind of attempt to make him the king at this point because it wasn't the time. It wasn't the purpose. And surely Jesus could feel that movement too. But the disciples were also probably wondering things like this. Why is Jesus in such a hurry to to send us across this lake? It was nighttime when he was sending them out. Why on earth is Jesus in such a hurry for us to get to Capernaum that we have to go and row by night, right? The wind doesn't blow as much at night, so they're going to be rowing this whole time. Hours. The disciples are thinking, okay, we just saw this awesome miracle, thought this was going to be a big deal. Now it's not, and now we have to row all night. Why is this happening, okay? Um, Why isn't he with us? Jesus says, go on ahead. How is he going to get there? They're probably thinking, this is the, probably the last boat to get across. How's Jesus going to get across? Um, if he's not going to meet us there, where's he going? Uh, yeah, all these questions, surely the disciples are thinking, what is going on? Why is this happening, playing out the way that it is? Well, we find out that Jesus answers their questions in a way that they don't expect. And it's so much like the way he answers our questions today, isn't it? Ways we don't expect. We hope and we pray for specific clarity on certain things. And it's not wrong to do that. God grants those wishes, those, not wishes, I'm sorry. God grants those prayers um, in his faithfulness at times, but he doesn't always do that. Sometimes he answers in the way that he answered the disciples, go across the lake at night with a big storm on the way. Jesus knew that was coming, didn't he? Why on earth would he do this? We ask why God brings us to places of hardship and difficulty, and we sort of sometimes demand an explanation. Don't we? I mean, that's that's what we do. It's, it's kind of human nature. It's what we think. Even believers in the church, we sort of have this view of God this way. He's the the genie that's going to answer our question about life. Um, The disciples, I think, were were hoping for the same kind of clarity. But they didn't get it. Jesus uses the dark and he uses the storm to teach them something else about himself today. And especially if you read John's account of this, you see that the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water with Peter are very connected. Okay? So... Last week, we saw faith in, in the face of need, right? They needed food. We saw faith in the face of need. Today, we see faith in the face of fear because the disciples are afraid. Remember, it's the fourth watch of the night, so that probably means 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Just before daybreak, something in there. Um, the disciples have been rowing for a long time. 
fighting a storm for maybe as much as eight or eight or nine hours. They're rowing, fighting against the storm. They're exhausted. They haven't slept. They're frustrated. They're still confused as to why Jesus isn't with them, where he is. And then, as my son alluded to in the kids' time, they saw something walking across the face of the water. And they thought, oh no, what is that? They thought it was a ghost. Um, One writer said it this way. I want to read this account. I thought it really puts you in the middle of this situation scenario. Then the wind picked up and the waves grew stronger, pushing against every pull of the oars. This was going to add hours to the trip. Adrenaline-fueled discussion was replaced by fatigue-fueled irritability. One of them commented that at this speed, Jesus would probably beat them there on foot. Just then, another shouted, What's that? All eyes strained sternward. A form was approaching in the murky dark. Peter stood up on the small rear deck and looked hard. It could not possibly be what it looked like, but soon it was unmistakable. Someone or something was walking toward them across the water. An unearthly fear seized the men. One spoke in a hushed panic. It's a ghost. The rowers found new energy, but a familiar voice called to them, Take heart, it's I. Don't be afraid. Jesus? It sounded like Jesus, but he was walking on top of the water. Maybe a spirit could do that, but not a man. Peter motioned to the rowers to stop. It was Jesus. Mouths hung open, but no one had words, except Peter. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Every astonished face turned to Peter. No one else had even thought of that yet. Jesus responded, come. So Peter sat on the gunwale, swung his legs over the side, and carefully put his weight on what should have engulfed him. Then he stood up. There was a collective gasp from the boat. Then he began taking tentative tentative steps toward Jesus. The others held their breath. Suddenly, Peter froze. He looked down at the waves, drenching his legs. There was panic in his eyes. Then he began to sink, as if into mud. He reached out toward Jesus and cried, Lord, save me. Jesus stepped forward, reached out, grabbed his arm, and pulled him up. Peter, looking intensely at Jesus, was breathing hard. Jesus said to him with affectionate firmness, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Let me ask you a question. When Peter stepped out of the boat and into the water, what held him up? Did they happen upon a very shallow part of the water where it just looked like he was walking on the water and he really wasn't? So that's, that's, our, that's what we say. Well, Peter's faith held him up above on top of the water. But you know, as I was thinking about that this week and reading some things, I quickly realized I don't think it was Peter's faith that kept him up. Jesus was. Right? And, and I think Peter knew that too because that's why he didn't just jump out of the boat immediately when he saw Jesus. He asked Jesus to call him out. He was trusting Jesus in the situation, not himself, not his own faith. He didn't mistake his own faith as the power that would command the water beneath him to be firm. And his cry out for help, save me, 
proved that Peter knew where the power to hold them up resided. And that in itself was an expression of faith on his part. John Bloom, a writer for Desiring God, has uh, points out two extremely helpful things here that I want to point out to you guys. I've got them on the screen, and this thing isn't working real solidly. So, um, Our copier broke, and we don't have sermon notes today. This is the first point. Just kidding, we're already past that. Hey, Camden, go to the next slide, buddy. There it is. This is the first point he makes. Real faith is not faith in our faith, but faith in the power of Jesus' words. You guys get that? I think John Bateman has said that before. It's not faith in our faith, like we have the power to muster this up, up because really faith in itself is a gift of God. So it's not faith in our faith, but faith in the power of Jesus' words. In fact, uh, many of you adults were going through the faith study with Paul Tripp in Sunday school. And he said something around like session three that has stuck with me. He said this, true faith always rests on the word of God. On the word of God. So in verse 30 in Matthew, when we see Peter step onto the water and begin walking toward Jesus, what happened? He saw the wind, the effects of the wind. He saw the wave, waves, and he was afraid. He was scared. And he began to sink. Now, this is Memorial Weekend, so a lot of times pools are opening, people are swimming, that sort of thing. Um, so kids, how many of you have been swimming this year already? And I know several of mine have. Um, when was the last time you jumped into a pool or a lake that you sank real slowly? I mean, unless you had maybe a life jacket or you jumped onto a pool noodle or something like that. But when you just jump into the water, how fast do you sink? Just real fast, right? Just real fast. That's how sinking happens. But Peter didn't sink that way. I just think that that's interesting. When his faith shifted from the firmness of Jesus' words to the uncertain effects of the, of the storm, that's when he began to sink. We already saw Jesus was walking on the water, right? Peter had already seen this. And so in some sense, he knew that Jesus had control over the storm. Not that he was thinking about it in that moment, but he'd already seen that because Jesus had proved it. He had power over nature, okay? So when Peter began to sink, and here's the thing that's, that's hard. When Peter began to sink, Jesus was letting him sink. That, I know that kind of, might rub you the wrong way at first because it did me as I was reading. I, I, it was Jesus that let Peter sink. And for Peter, I believe it was God's grace. Paul Tripp also in that series, Faith, calls this sort of thing uncomfortable grace. You guys remember that in the study? It's, he referred to this type of thing as uncomfortable grace. So hold on a second. Let's recap. Take a step back. Take a deep breath. Jesus sent the disciples. He said, you go. He commanded that they go out onto the lake, knowing that they were going to be rowing for nine hours and it was going to be a storm and it was not going to be fun. They were going to be tired and sleepy. He knew it was coming. Now Jesus tells Peter, go ahead. Yeah, come out onto the water with me. And then he lets them start sinking. And you're sitting there thinking, Rod, you're telling me this is God's grace? I believe that it is because that's what created 
and cause Peter to cry out to Christ for help. It quickly got Peter to stop looking to the world or himself as the source of truth and salvation and got his focus back on his Savior. When he did that, Jesus pulled him back up. So Camden, go to the next slide. This is the second point that John Bloom Bloom points out, that Jesus' words... Word is truer and stronger than what we see or feel. And when we doubt that, sometimes he graciously lets us sink to help us refocus on what's really important. Trusting Jesus and his word over what we see is difficult to learn. No matter what age we are, no matter what country we are, this is difficult. And so that's why the Lord takes us through so many different faith-testing, faith building experiences in our life. Those uncomfortable, that uncomfortable grace sometimes. And here's a hard truth that I, I still find difficult to grasp, but I think it's obvious from this event in Jesus' life, as we've read it today especially, the sovereign Lord intentionally sends us out when we're already weary to struggle against adversity in disorienting darkness. That's hard to think through, that God, who knows it all, would send us out, already tired, already weary, into a dark storm where we don't see him clearly. And yet, I think we can learn from this, that he does this in our lives. And if you think back, if you've been saved for really any length of time, you're probably thinking of situations in your life where you could see this. This is played out in your life. It was not a pleasant situation at the time. And yet, looking back, God has grown you and brought you through this better. God used that uncomfortable grace in your life to sanctify you, to bring you closer to him. But lest we think that Jesus is this harsh taskmaster, I'll remind us of the truth that we see here, that Jesus comes out, And he meets us in the storm. Right? He walked on the water to get to the disciples. Imagine what else he'll walk through in your life to come meet you. To come get to you. And when this happens, when Christ does this, he does does it for our benefit, of course. But he does it for more than just ours. Because he's displaying his power so others' faith will be strengthened too. Peter's the only one that got out of the boat. You guys have heard that pointed out before. He may have stuck his foot in his mouth um, and, and not had faith that he should have, and yet he's the only one that had faith enough to get out of the boat. So when we do this, when God brings us to these points in our life, it's for us, but it's not just for us. And like the rest of the disciples, once Jesus and Peter get back in the boat... They recognize the truth of what's just happened, and they worship him, and they say, it it connects. We think, well, it should have connected when he fed 20,000 people with five little rolls and fish. But now, in some deeper way, it finally connects, and the disciples say, truly, you are the Son of God. Truly, this is the case. So, I find this almost equally as difficult to swallow, yet true. How we struggle and persevere in this life speaks to an unbelieving world about Christ. When we cry out to God and rely on his strength instead of our own, we shout to a world 
that despite our struggles, Jesus is still the right way and he's still the only way. So here's my last observation in this and we'll wrap it up. Um, So far in this story, the crowds, the people that, uh, you know, Jesus and the disciples went away from, they don't know anything about this account. In fact, we're not sure that the crowds or anybody but the disciples or Jesus ever know he walked on water or calmed this storm in this way, or Peter did either. Jesus doesn't talk about it any other time. The disciples don't seem to talk about it. So if that's the case, who's this for? Why did Jesus do this? What was he teaching as he did this? Well, he did it for the disciples, and he did it for us. One of the minor points that we didn't point out last week that plays into this is that after all of the people had eaten, how many loaves, or I'm sorry, how many baskets of loaves and fish of leftovers were left? Twelve. How many disciples were there? Twelve. You guys get this. This is is easy math. This is my kind of math. Twelve and twelve. Easy. Right? Um, this, This is not a coincidence. We can't believe that. Jesus refers to to these guys as the the 12 several times. So this is not a coincidence. Not only does Jesus want us, want to use us to meet other people's needs, he surely means to say in all of this, when you serve me and you give and you give and you give until you think you can't give anymore, I'm going to take care of you. I'll always be enough. These guys all got their own basket full at the end. Jesus reminding them, I'm enough. If you pour out your life and you give bread to the world, I'm going to be your all-satisfying bread of life. The more you satisfy others, the more I will be your satisfaction. The more you give your life to others, the more I will give life to you. Jesus communicating this, and he now has said and made the same point two different times with the feeding of the 5,000 and with calming the storm, I am enough, he's saying. I am enough. In the bread and on the sea, Jesus provided. He multiplied the food and gave the disciples each their own basket of bread. He showed that he's going to be personal bread, right? That's part of the Lord's prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, You could apply it in the physical aspect of food, but I think also very accurately in Jesus being bread. He is our portion. Man shall not live by bread alone, he said, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is Christ himself. Each one of us. If you have an overwhelming ministry in front of you, like feeding 5,000 people with hardly any food, and you feel totally inadequate, Not only will he give you resources to feed them, he's going to be there for you when it's all over. Because he's enough. And now he's shown that in the dark and in the storm, he's not going to let anything separate you from him. He'll walk on water to get to you. And when you take him into your boat with joy, you're going to end up right where God wants you to be. So whether the story is about being rescued from hunger by making bread or being rescued from the wind by walking on the water, the point is that Jesus doesn't just give you bread to eat. He is your bread. 
your portion. He is enough. And Jesus doesn't just make the wind stop. He gets in the boat with you. At the risk of sounding cliche, the point has to be made. He's with you in the storm. He's with you in the storm. And cliche or not, Romans 8, the end of Romans 8 is absolutely true. Go ahead and turn there with me. I think it's important for you all to see this specifically. Verse 34, Romans 8, verse 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Cliche or not, that's true. Jesus doesn't just make the wind stop. He gets in the boat with you. And that's, I hope, a very comforting idea for you today. Um, Because inevitably, there's some kind of thing in your life that you could classify and probably would classify as a storm right now. Uh, Whether it's in your family, with your finances, in a job, in um, a relationship, In something, there is bound to be a storm. And this has direct meaning for your life today. Because Jesus doesn't just calm the storm, he gets in the boat with you. He goes with you. And he desires that kind of relationship with every one of us right now. He wants to wrap his his arms of everlasting love around us, to be our daily bread, to be with us in the storm, But the truth and reality is that if you don't have faith, if you are not trusting Christ, then you endure the storm alone. And that's not a place that you want to be. Without Christ, you will endure those things alone. But Jesus has come so you wouldn't have to, to make you new. And we notice... At the end of this story, Jesus and Peter get back in the boat and they say, truly you are the son of God. And they worship. They respond in seeing people walk on the water, a miraculous event. They respond by just worshiping. Guys, that is the appropriate response to seeing Jesus for who he really is, is we worship. And that's going to happen that, that could happen in your car on the way to work or here in church or at a prayer meeting or at a family reunion. It could happen anywhere you see Jesus for who he really is and the appropriate response at any point, at any time, is to worship. 
And what we see after that, in the end of Matthew 14, is the word spread. And people brought sick people to Jesus, and everyone that was brought to him was healed. And this tells us something about our Lord and our Savior. That if you're sick, and if you don't know Christ, if you come to him, he will heal you. He will save you. That was his point in coming. Remember John 3.36. This is an Awana verse that that actually helped me memorize this verse. Awana did. Any Awana kids remember John 3.36? TNTs, I know you guys go through it. I know I'm putting you on the spot. John 3.36. I'll get you started, Emery. Whoever believes in the Son... You don't know this. I haven't gotten that far, Dad. Whoever believes in the Son has life. Whoever does not obey the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Believe in the Son. Set your eyes on Christ. And then we we go back to verse 16 of that same chapter. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Your sin isn't revealed to wallow in self-pity or depression or to think there's no way out. God has come to set you free so that you might be saved. Whoever believes in him, verse 18 says, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to what? To save sinners. Praise God. Because I'm looking at a bunch of sinners and you're looking at a big time sinner. And this is God's recipe. This is God's way of adopting people into his family kids into his family grafting us in Jesus has paid the price by laying down his life on the cross and proved that he is God by rising again from the dead trust him today and nothing will ever separate you from the love of God again Romans 8 says that height nor depth life nor death none of these things Storms in your life, they won't separate you from the love of God. And that's the comfort that we have from chapter 14 in Matthew. Let's pray together. God, no matter where you call us, no no matter where you command us even to go, Lord, to the, the fields where it's sunny and there's flowers blooming, or whether it's to a lake in the middle of the night with strong winds where we think we're going to die. God, may we go. May we follow where you lead. Lord, and I pray that you would give us comfort in being reminded of your love for us. Lord, you, you did calm the storm. You did tell Peter he needed more faith. And yet, Lord, you still rescued him. You still got into the boat with him. Thank you for getting into our boat and going with us, Lord. Were it not for that, we would stand condemned already.
but because of Christ, we can trust you today. Whether that means coming up here and talking to someone or whether that means going home and praying at your bed or at the table or wherever that might mean, Lord, we can today know you've called us and that you love us. And so, Lord, as we, as we reflect on this, as we sing a little bit more, I, I pray, God, that you would, you would break down barriers. And as I prayed at the beginning, Lord, you would use your word to cut through all the junk in our life and lay us bare before you this morning. Pray it in Jesus' name.